Welcome to On the Cusp, the podcast that analyzes the new forms of aggression facing liberal democracies and hears from the innovative people at the forefront of countering that aggression. I'm your host, Elizabeth Bro, and I work on these issues at the, as a fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Now, we seem to be on the cusp of a real cyber war between Israel and Iran. As we record this, there's just been a blackout at Iran's Natanz nuclear plant, which Iran blamed on Israel, and Israel seems to have taken responsibility for Now, at first, Iran spoke of a cyber attack, though at the moment, the blackout seems to have been caused by a saboteur who set off an explosion. Either way, the cyber tit-for-tat between the two countries seems likely to escalate, and that, of course, includes the famous or infamous Stuxnet attack years ago, which set back Iran's nuclear program by many months. And as we all know, it's not just Israel and Iran that are at it. And in fact, we've been worrying about cyber aggression for years, and there is no international framework in place yet. Nothing like an international arms control treaty that would regulate how countries use cyber to attack one another. Now, the current situation benefits nobody, but because countries can't agree on rules in cyberspace, each country is left defending itself and hitting back as best as it can. And some countries team up in groups but it's still pretty much a Wild West situation. Now, there is nobody better to discuss this unattractive situation with than Chris Inglis, former deputy director at the NSA, current member of the US Cyberspace Solarium Commission, and it was reported today, the 12th of April, he is about to be appointed the US National Cyber Director, the first ever US National Cyber Director. Now, Chris is a computer scientist by training and spent 28 years at the NSA. As I said, there's simply nobody better with whom to discuss cyber strategy than him. Welcome, Chris. Thank you for that generous welcome. I'll try to lean into it. So thank you. I have lots of questions for you to lean into. And, and the first one is why it seems so hard for countries to agree on some sort of arms control framework within cyberspace. I know it has been tried many, many times. And I know the Obama administration had some success, or at least, at least they thought they had some success in convincing China, for example, to limit its aggression in cyberspace. But yet here we are. The situation is deteriorating, even as every single one of us uses the internet or relies on the internet even more every single day. Yeah, I think there probably is some degree of a failure to think through these issues such that First and foremost, I think that this Natanz incident, whatever it ultimately proves out to be, identifies yet again that cyber is not a sideshow. Cyber is not a domain unto itself where things constrained in cyberspace only affect things in cyberspace. It has a real relationship to the world that we operate in, no matter whether it's a physical manifestation or a virtual manifestation. And given that the world, world affairs, either reconciles its tensions through collaboration, competition, or conflict, cyberspace is not accepted from that. This clearly is a place where there's some degree of reconciliation taking place in and through cyberspace. As to why we then find ourselves in a position that this surprises us, it may well be that there's still this abiding assumption that these systems are sufficiently resilient and robust on their own merit that they don't require a great deal of protection separate and apart from properly building and disposing of them. Of course, that's not true. The best that a network or a piece of digital infrastructure can do is to be defensible, and if not defended, and in this case, it might be the physical defense as opposed to the kind of the cyber defense that's wanting. If they're not well defended, then you'll find that dedicated, wily aggressors will take advantage of it. 
And so we have to then kind of think through if we have missions and functions dependent upon digital infrastructure, clearly Natanz did, then how do we build those such that they're defensible? How do we then actually defend them? And then finally, I think that we think that in some cases, and that this is a failure of imagination, we think in some cases that it is impossible to deter actors in cyberspace. Therefore, we don't begin to take the necessary actions to align actions and consequences. Therefore, allowing situations like this to go to the upper right-hand quadrant, to the worst possible corner, simply because we've not put any degree of retardation into it, that we could meaningfully constrain or hold accountable the actors who are operating in this space. So I'd summarize all that by saying that resilience and robustness is a meaningful differentiator for any deterrence scheme. Cyberspace is no exception. And why you can't keep bad actions off the cyber playing field, cost of entry is far too low for that. You can, in fact, align actions and consequences in ways that you can meaningfully affect the decision calculus of aggressors in this space. And finally, if you are alert, you're on the front balls of your feet, and you're not assuming that the network defends itself, you might catch these things in the incipient phase, engage them in the incipient phase, reduce the aggravation or perhaps the exaggerated action that might then ensue and stop this become before it becomes a full-blown consequence. Now, you've asked about norms. I think those are important as well. This is an international space where we're so massively interconnected that we ought to allow entanglement, which is an age-old aspect of how do we deter one another. We entangle each other to some degree such that we've got shared outcomes and shared infrastructure underneath of us. And to that degree, coalitions should band together, try to figure out what are appropriate behaviors? What are the consequences for inappropriate behaviors? How do we incentivize the former? How do we kind of bring consequences to bear on the latter? I, again, am in the camp that thinks that will make a meaningful difference. And part of that is, of course, to not just respond when something happens, but to to signal before it happens that there will be punishment and therefore it's in, in your interest not to, to engage in whatever offensive cyber action. So taking the general case of deterrence and, and applying that to cyberspace, if I just might kind of walk down that road a little bit, I think first and foremost, deterrence has always, even before the nuclear age, been defined as an, an activity that tries to affect the decision calculus of human beings. The humans remain humans in this space as much as they were humans in any other space. And so if we actually try to bring to bear things that affect the decision calculus of humans, we might still succeed. Cyberspace is different than just about any other domain where we've tried to work deterrence. We try to work deterrence in bank lobbies. Kind of, We don't want people to walk in with kind of face masks and guns. We work deterrence, of course, in the nuclear age. And those environments are materially different, right? Especially the nuclear age, which I think bedevils us. In the nuclear age, deterrence's goal was to convince human beings or nation states representing human beings that we should never, ever have a nuclear weapon go off. And therefore, the goal was to make it such that we never encountered one. And we believed that we would fail if one kind of showed up. And I think that's an appropriate calculus for that domain. That's an impossible standard in the cyberspace age. We can't keep the weapon off the field, even minor mishaps, whether it's a squirrel chewing into an electrical cage or a human making a simple mistake, are going to be met with some degree of consequence that that has a deleterious effect on the network itself. So appreciating that you can't keep it completely off the field, but focusing on the human being, 
I think we can bring the three strategies that have kind of worked well in the past, you can bring those to bear to affect the decision calculus of human beings. The first of those is to make the environment sufficiently resilient and robust that people who have malicious intent are less likely, not impossible, but less likely to try to do something with that domain if they simply know that it's a wasted effort. That's not going to keep everybody off the field, but it'll keep some. Second is for those kind of ardent aggressors, kind of adversaries who say, I'm still coming at you to ensure that we have the ability to understand who's doing what, to have predefined what actions are appropriate or inappropriate, and to impose appropriate consequences on them. That's a package deal. You can't do just one of those things. So you can't just say, I'll impose consequences in a domain where you can't actually pin the ribbon on somebody. Mm -hmm. And so if you're prepared to do that, if you have done that, then I think, again, that will affect the decision calculus. And then finally, you need to make sure that the degree of entanglement is optimized such that you have worked with hopefully like-minded nations, but even those who disagree with you, so that there's a very clear understanding up front about what the rules of the game are and your willingness, your desire to impose those, those rules of the game. Benefits for good actors and consequences for bad actors. The last thing I would say is to my earlier point, is that while all of what I've just described is trying to apply deterrence in the cyber domain, you have to bring all instruments of power to bear to aid and abet those positive actions you want to see play out in cyberspace. So whether those are diplomatic remedies, financial sanctions, and a whole range of tools in that category, diplomacy, sometimes just a good public shaming, all of those should be brought to bear to try to create that kind of aspect of how do we affect the decision calculus of human beings in that space. I then if we did all of those things, would say that there are some very bullish prospects for kind of changing the nature of what kind of occurs in that space. But if, like in the case of some, you simply say it's impossible, you'll find out that that then will rise to meet your expectations and you'll be in a place where chaos, disorder rule the day. And since you mentioned that decision-making calculus, which is really the fundamental aspect of, of how we communicate with our adversaries. We try to change that decision-making calculus. But in order to do that, we have to know how they think. And, and from my perspective, it seems that we too often almost think it in a Marxist sense that, that we put something into a box and out comes this other thing. Whereas leaders on the other side have their own personal motivations for the actions they agree with in, the, in cyber aggression as it relates to state-sponsored cyber aggression against, for example, the U.S., and so how do we get into their heads if we don't even know what, how their thinking goes? I think you make a really good point. And, and I believe that the answer to your question is actually embodied in the question, which is that the Iranians in this case, or the Israelis, presumably, there's some tete-a-tete occurring between them. They're not going to think their decision calculus isn't the same as ours. And therefore, you have to understand the world as they see it. You know, what are their aspirations? What are the things they hold near and dear? What are they willing to change their behaviors to achieve? We have to have people who take some time and attention to understand the cultural lay of the land, the societal lay of the land, to understand their aspirations. Intelligence about more than bits, ones and zeros, matters greatly in this case. You know, my experience in the military says that time and again, when we charter some of us to go off and be the red team, to think like the adversary does in every way possible. We're always the better for then understanding how do we not simply prevail in some competition or conflict, but how do we prevent it in the first place? How do we actually get to, you know, to the left of some event because we've begun to understand not simply their aspirations, but what they're likely to do, where they're likely to go, and how we motivate them to believe otherwise? 
unless we think like they do, and it's impossible to do that with the degree of confidence that we might prefer, but unless we try, we'll always find ourselves mystified why they didn't act the way we would act. They simply won't. Exactly. Now, if I can bring the perspective down to a more pedestrian level, which is the everyday life of, of, of the private sector and, and, and as consumers alike. And one aspect that seems fundamental that hasn't been resolved really is how to incentivize the private sector to be part of this solution. Now, every company makes decisions based on what's best for the shareholders ultimately. And the CEO or the C-suite and, and the board may decide not to invest a great deal in, in backup for various contingencies because it's unlikely that it will be needed. And so it's an unnecessary expense and it doesn't look good on, on the quarterly balance sheet if you put that sort of money in for something that's unlikely to happen. But what any government, I think, ultimately wants companies to do is to, to make themselves as secure as possible. So how, how can the private sector be incentivized to be the government's partner, essentially, or to, to see national security as relevant to its own operations? Yeah, so that's a great question. I think first, I would try to tear down the wall between the sense that it's either national security or it's some other form of perhaps corporate security, mission security. They're more alike than they're not, right? So what we're really talking about is, do we have confidence that the mission, whatever that mission might be for a private or a public sector organization, is that mission properly dependent on digital infrastructure such that we have confidence that that digital infrastructure will deliver the goods? So first and foremost, we need to change the nature of the conversation. We're not actually trying to defend digital infrastructure. We're trying to defend the missions that are dependent on that. If companies think that way, and government increasingly thinks that way, then they'll be naturally inclined to say, well, of course, I want to invest in that digital infrastructure such that it's resilient, robust, that it has some properties of kind of robustness and recovery, because my mission is dependent upon that. My business plan is dependent upon that. If, however, they don't see the connection between those two, then they'll treat it as a commodity and wonder why that commodity fails to perform and why they keep kind of suffering these pratfalls. To that end, I think that some degree of education is required. Some degree of accountability is required. We all know that CEOs in the United States who report their performance, public CEOs, report their performance through a variety of instruments, not least of which is through an annual Sarbanes-Oxley report to the Securities Exchange Commission, understand that they are directly accountable for the fiduciary integrity of their businesses. The kind of SEC, the Security Exchange Commission, has interpreted that, I think as recently as 2018, to include cyber, the digital infrastructure underneath. Perhaps we need to make a sharper distinction about where we think that accountability lies. It does not lie with the information technology crowd. It lies in the boardroom. And so make that clear. But again, marry that with the positive aspects of what's then the return to the business objectives that that accrues from that. Finally, I think that we have to appreciate that there are quite a few people who find themselves in a position where they inherit flaws, vulnerabilities, weaknesses, or a lack of understanding about the providence of something because they're somewhere in the middle. Everyone feels like they're in the middle. You know, look, I bought this and it came the way it was. Mm I don't know how to enrich it such that it is appropriately robust and kind of you know resilient in the face of something. So we need to figure out how do we actually build this in such that when you buy a pound of anything, it comes along with some inherent digital resilience and robustness. The classic term in the United States is the mom and pop shops. 
you know, many of them don't have enough resources to do anything more than buy a pound of information technology. And if it doesn't come with that built in, they are kind of bereft in their ability to understand how to add it in. And, and so how do we then do that? The Solarium Commission, for example, recommended that we consider levying that burden on final goods assemblers. Just like an automobile manufacturer, when they sell a car, they're accountable for the inherent safety, robustness of that car across the lifespan of its warranty. There ought to be a similar levy of that expectation for the digital kind of properties. And then finally, we need to make it such that without holding everyone accountable for everything, that that's a recipe for confusion. We need to try to figure out how do we have a meaningful collaboration with all the players in a given supply chain. Think of SolarWinds, where you really had from the SolarWinds company to the downstream customers, mm -hmm. the series of adjacent stovepipes, each one passing some material or digital activity from one to the other with very little understanding about what the provenance of that was, very little understanding about whether threats had been observed somewhere along that supply chain. We now understand that before FireEye discovered this in early December of 2020, there were at least two other companies that said something's amiss here and reported that singly, you know, upstream to solar winds, but everyone else in the chain was unaware. How do we turn those adjacent stovepipes on their side so we have a more fluid, a richer, real-time exchange of information along the supply chain, which benefits everyone participating in that. I think if you did those three things, kind of reconsider what it means to have digital resilience, it's a business imperative. It's not a digital imperative. Reconsider how then you hold folks accountable for kind of imbuing the systems with that and reconsider how we can aid and abet one another's efforts. You get to a better place. That's not going to be a miracle cure. But to be sure, if we get on the road to that, I think ultimately the ecosystem will learn as it goes to be in a better place, era by era. What about, for example, something like for the past 10 years or maybe a bit longer even, companies have put corporate social responsibility in their annual reports and it's not a legal obligation. It's just it makes them look good to demonstrate what they're doing. Do you think something like that in the area of cybersecurity where it could show off or, or demonstrate that they have met a particular government standard? Standardization and compliance, they have their value. At the end of the day, those are important. But if you kind of go too far in scripting what then might be the preferred behaviors or even for that matter, the preferred properties of a given system, you'll find that whether it's nature or dedicated adversaries, they'll find the flaws in that. And ultimately, your weaknesses will not have been scripted, but you'll suffer them all the same. And so those are always a basis kind of conveying the wisdom of the elders, those that have come before, right, to those who build and operate systems. I think what's required on top of that is having built these systems such that they have some reasonable resilience and robustness, how do we then understand what they're actually doing? How do we understand the life forces that are coursing through them? And how do we put ourselves in a position that we discover and address anomalies at the earliest possible moment? So what I would say is that we actually have quite a few defensible systems. What's lacking is systems that are then well defended. Those are two different activities. One depends on the other. And so we need to have a premium placed on how do we actually defend these systems. Finding that we have defensible systems at best that are then well defended will be in a materially different place and then kind of interdicting the efforts of nature and dedicated adversaries at the earliest possible moment. I think that you know what oftentimes companies find when they're called into the scene of a disaster, a digital disaster, is that it's been going on for quite some time. And it was only when it became a three-alarm fire that we called out the fire department. 
what if we call them out when there's smoke in the closet and kind of we suppress this before it becomes a fire? Now, that can be a bit Pollyannish, and there's sort of a pipe dream in the middle of that. But early action depends upon early cognizance, depends upon vigilance, depends upon a defensible infrastructure underneath. Oftentimes, we just do that last bit and assume the rest takes care of itself. Yeah. If I could turn the equation around very quickly and suggest that maybe we as ordinary consumers have to get used to constant disruption because it's just not possible to guarantee perfection in cyberspace, considering the pressures that that every single network faces. Is it just something that we have to get used to and we shouldn't get too worked up if our details are leaked? Because it's it's the price we pay for the convenience of having the round-the-clock access to, to cyberspace. I think there's a great truth in what you've said, but I would try to characterize that in as positive a way as possible without being too much of a spin doctor, which is to not convince people, hey, your, your life's going to be terrible and challenged and mediocre, but rather to say, look, the best this system can do, just like your car, which has the occasional flat tire, the best your system is going to do is to be defensible. So you need to actually work to maintain it patch it, bring it up to snuff so that it's less likely to disappoint you. But you must take an active role in that. If you do take an active role in that, if you're a discerning consumer, if if you're a discerning operational user, if you have some digital literacy, you don't need to know how to code, that's not bad. But, But if you have some digital literacy, you'll be more likely to understand when this thing is not fully meeting your expectations and been able to kind of either address it yourself or to call in an expert. To the extent that people do that, I think that their expectations of these systems will be well met, right? And and they can then be bullish about whether they serve their purposes. To the extent that they kind of completely divorce themselves from any responsibility of that, they will find themselves shocked, stunned, and amazed when these systems fall flat on their face, because anything that's not maintained over time will disappoint you. Yeah. And and we have been spoiled, it has to be said. We have been spoiled because we have been well, nobody has taken the trouble to, to tell us that we can't take this complete security for granted. And, and so when something happens, as you say, it's as if we are surprised that a car can have a flat tire. How many adults have, have asked, you know, the kind of the, the teenager among us, you know, which I'm one sometimes, what did you think was going to happen? We need to have that conversation, right? You know, with people who make use of digital infrastructure. If you made no meaningful investment of your own kind of critical thinking, of your own kind of real property maintenance, kind of lift that term from the physical world, what did you think was going to happen? How could you think that this system would perpetuate and defend itself? Systems don't do that, right? And and therefore, individuals, companies, private, public sectors all must engage in what's my responsibility, such that having applied that, you can then understand and exercise, realize the expectations that are reasonable. And without putting too optimistic a spin on it, I think this is where it's obvious that it's in everybody's interest to be a part of of keeping the country safe, because by keeping ourselves safe, we can help keeping the country safe. So it's it's not some sort of abstract notion of contributing to national security. It's actually just looking after your own computer, your own devices. And by doing so, you do your tiny little bit for... Couldn't agree more. I mean, just think of the way you take care of your car. You may not have a car living in the city, but if you did, You'd have a natural sense as to whether you should lock it, whether you should leave valuables on the dashboard, whether you should perform routine maintenance of the brakes, of the tires. You would understand what are those things that are directly your responsibility? What are those things that exceed your responsibility? Fortunately, if you're buying a car, you're supported by an ecosystem that builds security, resilience, robustness in. So we have to get that part right. We then have to get the individual's responsibility right. 
And then we have to make sure that we hold those parties accountable that police the streets, that take unsafe vehicles off the streets, that go after drunk drivers. All of that is the ecosystem where there's a hugely complementary role to be played by individuals, organizations, and the technology. But it's not just the technology. And the technology itself doesn't defend itself or perpetuate itself in increasingly resilient manifestations unless we actively engage it. Well, that's a call to arms for for all of us who ever use a device, which is obviously every single one of us. And I was going to congratulate Chris Inglis on on his new about-to-be-announced appointment as we speak. By the time this podcast airs, he will have been named the new U.S. National Cyber Director. But as I think you can tell from listening to him, it is the U.S. government that ought to be congratulated. So we'll congratulate the U.S. government and thank Chris for his fantastic insights. Thank you, Chris. So I would say that while I can't speak for the National Cyber Director because there hasn't been one nominated or confirmed yet, and while I'm not at the moment able to speak for the U.S. government, I will speak positively about all of those who've leaned in to try to figure out what are the doctrinal components of a rational world in cyberspace and to try to then figure out what are the people responsibilities inside of that. And then finally, what are the technological components of that? We often get that in the wrong order, we do the reverse of that and find that not having gotten the people parts right or worse, the doctrinal pieces right, the technology doesn't meet our expectations. That is, I think, no surprise. And therefore, if we work it in the proper order, we'll be in a better place. Thank you, Chris. Please feel free to subscribe and comment on Apple and Spotify as ever. And of course, you can also tweet to me at Elizabeth Braw. Many thanks as ever to our producers Olivia Leslie and Anya Terrell. We'll be back very soon with another episode and another guest who is doing pioneering work. See you on the cusp.